This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Hey, Sam. What's new? We've had we've had quite the week of hospital visits. You're you coming off a hospital visit because of an egg, right? Yep. So, so Everett had her first egg last night, and it went badly, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so she started to. Uh, it was just hives at first. So we're like, oh, we can figure this out. Yeah. Then as her eyeballs started to swell and everything else was going bad, we're like, oh, we need to seek medical attention. <laughs> and we thought the pediatric urgent care is way closer than Broward General. So we hit that, but then they're like, oh, here's all the medicine she needs, but someone needs to watch her for the next four hours, and we're closing. So we're going to call an ambulance right now. Oh, boy. And an ambulance is going to take you and her to Broward General so they can just watch you. And the ambulance came with a full fire truck with a ladder, and they came in hot. <laughs> so that was a wild ride. Who got, did you get to ride no, in the ambulance? No, Morgan got to ride in the ambulance. Okay. She said that was quite the experience, though. But I beat the ambulance to the hospital, so not nice. a good sign. Good work. Yeah. So... How did Everett respond to the egg? Like, was she? Was it just the signs of hives and stuff like that? Or yeah, was she, she liked the egg. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were actually really because she's not a good eater. Yeah, she does not like solid foods. So we were like, oh, cool. Here's an option. Here's an option, like great breakfast option. And luckily, she didn't eat a lot of it because she's not a good eater. So it didn't go into full. <laughs> what is it? Anaphylactic shock. Um, but yes, yeah, she was. She was a trooper. Glad to know that had a happy ending. Yep. An expensive egg. Pass around some, yeah, yeah. If you're mad about your dozen egg prices at the supermarket right now, just wait. <laughs> Who knows yeah, what the, one scrambled egg is going to. Urgent care, ambulance, It's the trifecta. Room. Yeah. It's the, nice. uh, it's the this, full bingo card. This is when we're hoping for good insurance. And so we're jumping in at Genesis chapter 41 today. And just to kind of recap, if you haven't listened to the last few episodes as we've been hitting into the life of of Joseph and Judah, Joseph is the father's favorite son. He's born as the first son of Jacob, the love of his life, Rachel. So he gets all the privilege, right? He is, he gets the, the robe of many colors, which means that he's kind of set apart. He is likely to get the inheritance. He is the father's favorite son and all the other sons are kind of treated like leftovers. And so the brothers hate their brother, and he helps them along, right? Like, he's, he's not very likable. He's very arrogant. He's telling, he's always giving bad reports about them. And he comes to them with dreams saying, there's going to come a day when, when all of you guys bow down to me, is essentially what the dreams mean. So they, they hate him. And one day, they get an opportunity when he's coming to check in on them in a faraway city. They see him from a distance, and they conspire, and they sell him to a group of Ishmaelite traders, and he's taken down to Egypt where he's enslaved. And yet you find that unlike all of his family, Joseph loves the Lord. Mm-hmm. He, he believes in the sovereign promises of God. He holds on to those promises. And even though injustice has hit him, when he is serving Potiphar, who's the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, he's, he's working hard. He's doing things in the Lord's name. And, and God is blessing all of his efforts to where he rises up to be in charge of Potiphar's house. 
Well, then Potiphar's wife makes a move on him, mm. accuses him of rape. Potiphar is not happy about it, throws him into prison, where Joseph is going to stay for years and years. And there comes a moment that we talked about last week where two of Pharaoh's most trusted advisors, his cupbearer and his baker, come to prison. Apparently, there was an assassination plot. And so Joseph interprets these guys' dreams, and he says to the the cupbearer, he's going to be restored, but the baker is going to be killed, and it turns out to be exactly as Joseph said. And Joseph begged the cupbearer, when you get out of here, remember me. Just tell Pharaoh about me, and the cupbearer gets his freedom and forgets Joseph, and two more years go by until we reach the passage today. And I want you to imagine, because Joseph being in a dungeon, like the pit that he's in is literally the same word for cistern. So if you know what a cistern is, it's a big hole that's dug into the ground. There's there's nothing there. This is not a, a fun kind of prison. It's not the, the language is suggesting that it's old school dungeon pit. So I want you to imagine cupbearer leaves and you're thinking to yourself any day now, Hmm. any day now, he's going to have talked to Pharaoh and they're going to come to get me. They're going to realize my value and a day goes by and a week goes by and a month goes by and several months go by and you start to realize where you had your one hope you know, this, this, this is it. This is how, how it's going to come. He forgets about you and you're stuck in prison for another two years. It's like, have you ever watched how our legal system works when someone is found to be innocent because DNA results prove that they're innocent? And you're like, of course, they should get out of prison like the next day. Yeah. But they still have to go through all the process. And so they spend like quite a bit of time still in prison after that. And it's like, oh, God, that's got to be hard, especially after you think you're getting out. Well, this is what Joseph experiences, that whole two years of just waiting. And now you get to chapter 41, and the Lord ordains events so that it's going to trigger the cupbearer to remember Joseph. So starting in verse 1, it says, After two years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, There came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And so that's a bizarre dream. Yeah, it'll be a weird one to receive. Yeah, because cows, well, for one, they're not carnivorous, right? So here you're having a dream about these fat, healthy cows getting eaten up by skinny, scrawny cows. That's bizarre. And coming up out of the Nile, that's also bizarre. Uh, you know, in Egypt, the Nile was Egypt. It, everything about it. Even to this day, I saw this fact researching for another project. But do you know that 95% of all of Egypt's population to this day lives within three kilometers of the Nile? Makes sense. It's a huge nation, huge nation, and 95% live within three kilometers of the Nile. So the whole country is utterly dependent upon this river. And so when it talks about the cows coming up out of it, it's, it's like life. Life is coming up out of it. But then these other cows also come out of it. And they're eating the plump cows. So Pharaoh wakes. He's troubled by that dream. 
He falls asleep again and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And so in the first dream, you don't see cows eating other cows. And in this dream, you don't see wheat, (laughs) you know, swallowing other wheat. So it's bizarre. It's out of the ordinary. This is supernatural. Yeah, and there's enough ordinary elements, but also the weirdness of it that that's the troubling purpose. You know, it was crazy, but it made no sense at all. It was, you know, aliens and stuff and whatnot. But Pharaoh has to be thinking, all right, these are way too similar and cows are way too important. The Nile's way too important and grain's way too important to just be like, oh, this was odd. Let's write this off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all of this is, is dealing with agriculture and, and industry and food and everything else. So <clears throat> what happens in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So I don't know if nobody offered a guess at this. Yeah, well, you probably don't guess in Pharaoh's terms. You know, you've got to be pretty sure you're going to speak about Pharaoh's dreams to Pharaoh, and you don't really want to be wrong here. Yeah, that's true. Like, you're not just like, ah, I'm 50-50, Pharaoh, but I think this could be it. <laughs> yeah, true. But in Egyptian culture, like, their gods that were over agriculture often look like livestock or cows. And so when you see cows that are swallowing other cows, there's, you know, they're already going to be thinking agriculture because the gods that bring about a blessed agriculture looked like cows. So this isn't exactly, you know, Nancy Drew figuring out what this means. Egypt in that era is like particularly fearful of famine. Okay. And what would happen every year is the Nile has to flood just right. And if, if you don't get large amounts of flooding from the Nile, then you can't irrigate your crops and you'll have a terrible year and famine results from too little water. But if you have too much water, then it inundates all the land. It keeps you from being able to, to seed your crops and everything else. And so you'll have a famine that year. And so every year the Nile is really, really important to do exactly what it's supposed to do. And they've found in archaeology that if you went to the century or two exactly before where we expect to find Joseph in the timeline, there was something called the Great Mega Drought. And during this time, Egypt went for a massively long stretch where they had almost no crops. Famines came every year, and it caused a, what, what's been called a catastrophic economic collapse in Egypt. And so as this particular dynasty, which if this is the 12th dynasty that we think Joseph is born into, this is one of the dynasties where they're starting to recover from the utter collapse of the Mm. great mega drought. And all of the tombs, everybody that's writing from the 12th dynasty that we have records of, they're obsessed with surviving famines because they've just endured something that utterly destroyed their country. Understandably. For centuries. And so there's guys, there's a guy named Ketty, there's a guy named Ameni who write like, during my reign, the famines never hit the people and they're bragging about this stuff. So 12th dynasty, when Joseph is there, everybody's terrified of famines. And so Pharaoh is going to have big ears to hear about what this dream might be. And when it's talking about food and grain and cattle, 
he's obviously going to be troubled, but nobody can interpret it. And that's like make or break for your pharaoh leadership. Like if they're saying like, okay, at the end of my dynasty, if all that happened was no famines happened, then you're a hero. Yeah. Like yeah. It's a make or break right here for him. So he's pretty nervous probably. Yeah, completely. Like a famine destroys you. But it, and you got to think about it. It not only just it destroys your economy, which then impacts your military, which then makes you more susceptible to invasion mm-hmm. and uprisings and assassination attempts and all that kind of stuff. So this is front and center, top of the agenda for Pharaoh. And it's a reason why back then the Nile was so worshipped and so venerated is because it played the large role in whether or not famines were coming. And remember, they don't have grocery stores. You know, they don't they don't have preservation, preservatives, and all that kind of stuff. If you don't get it one year, it's it's bad news. Not just for your crops, by the way, but you don't have crops to feed your livestock, which means your livestock's in jeopardy. It's everything's kind of a domino effect. So it says, then the chief cupbearer. Now, remember, we know this guy. He was imprisoned with Joseph. This is the one that Joseph interpreted the dreams for and said, in three days, you're going to be restored to your office. The cupbearer, who is a close, you remember why he's so close with Pharaoh? Making sure no one kills him. Yeah, he's got to taste the, the wine. when he, He's taken the first sip of everything that Pharaoh drinks to make sure that Pharaoh's not being poisoned. So this is somebody that Pharaoh trusts with his life that God, through his sovereignty, has engineered this entire story to put, Mo, to put Joseph in a jail cell next to this guy who has the ear of Pharaoh. And even God's like, hey, wake up, cupbearer. It's been two years. Yeah, right. like, let's get yeah. this news to Pharaoh. <laughs> yeah, come on. Come on, I've dude. had to give these dreams and bail you out, so come on. So it says, then chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation, and a young Hebrew was there with us, a, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Well, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And I want to stop here because this is another one of these things that we see in the story of Joseph. And this is, the Bible often has hidden in the story kind of these artistic clues, God's sovereignty that he buries in the story. And one of the things that happens in the life of Joseph is every time he changes his clothing, his circumstances change, right? Mm. So think about this. What's the first thing that happens to him involving his clothing is what? He gets his coat. He gets the multicolored coat from his father. What does that mean? He's on top. He's on top, man. He's the favorite son of the father. And then what happens? They strip it off and throw him in a pit and he's dead. (laughs) Yeah. They, They betray him. And so they take away his clothing and now Joseph is on the bottom rung, and then he goes into Potiphar's house, and he's oh, yeah. dressed in you know the finer things of Potiphar. And then what happens? Potiphar's wife rips it off of him. Potiphar's wife rips it off of him, so you know something bad's about to happen, and he goes to prison. And now you hear Joseph is being called to appear before Pharaoh, and on cue, what does he do? He's like, well, I better change my clothing. <laughs> you know, so it says. He shaved himself and changed his clothes and came in before Pharaoh. 
And, you know, in Hebrew culture, both ancient and, you know, even up until the time of Jesus's era, facial hair was, was almost considered a sign of wisdom and manliness. And so whenever you see the Hebrews, they've got the big beard and all the artwork and everything else. In Egypt, the opposite is true. When you were a priest, you were totally shaven. I mean, if you ever look at ancient Egyptian artwork, the guys will be bald. Maybe they're wearing headdresses. A lot of times they've got their eyebrows literally painted on hmm. to where they're they're not hairy. You'll never see them with beards. And the reason for that was the Egyptian priest, this is totally not related to anything we're talking about. Just a but fun fact. Just chasing a rabbit. The reason for that was the Egyptian priests had to be so clean in order to conduct their affairs that they didn't want to risk capturing oil or dirt or dust or any kind of lice in their hair so they would shave themselves entirely so that they could maintain top-level cleanliness. And so when it says that Joseph shaved himself and changed his clothes, well, shaving himself to go before Pharaoh would make him have the appearance of somebody that was respected in Egypt like one of their priests. That's cool. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how Mark used to make fun of your, you being the, the person in all the world who grows his facial hair the fastest, and That's it true. really is. It's phenomenal. And I like how Pharaoh's like not in a rush to get this done. Pharaoh, even in this moment, like he cares so much about the hygiene, the clean, like they really cared. Like what you were just saying matters. Like they were so about, you know, hypoallergenic stuff that, man, he's like, hey, I got these really important dreams that seem pretty serious right now, but I'm going to let you take some time, yeah. shave your head, shave your beard, get a change of clothes, clean yourself up, and then come into my presence. Yeah. You, did, you didn't want to come into the presence of Pharaoh dirty. The same kind of idea of the priests going into the, the, the tabernacle, you no, know, you had to stop. You had to go through all kinds of bathing and rituals to become clean before you could go into the presence of God in the tabernacle. Well, Egypt had the same kind of standards when you came into the presence of Pharaoh because they viewed him as a god. So you better be clean. Don't bring any of your defilement in front of him. And so Joseph is honoring those customs. And so he puts on a new garment. And so what do you expect? His circumstances are about to change. And they can't get worse. Yeah, right? I mean, he's bottom, bottom, bottom of, of the story. Like, that's one of the things about Joseph's story is it's such a roller coaster. And to this point, it's kind of a roller coaster on a downward trajectory, right? So he's the favorite son of the father, expected to inherit all of Jacob's stuff, and then he becomes a slave. But then he becomes the lead slave. But then he's thrown into prison. But then he becomes the lead prisoner and now he's about to be exalted beyond anything that anyone could have possibly imagined in the greatest empire that existed on the face of the planet back then. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, I want you to imagine this. Imagine saying this to somebody who's viewed as being a god. Okay. Yeah, this is bold. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. So already you're correcting the guy, which is, you know, rather than just saying, oh, thank you so much. And you don't want to lead him serve to, you. Yeah, you don't want to lead him to doubting. Like, that's a bad opening line. Like, it's not in me. Like, what if he just stops you right there? What if you don't finish this sentence, Joseph? Yeah, right. True, true. 
Yeah, you, he's pretty much saying, like, I'm the wrong guy. Like, it's not in me. Yeah, this is like how not to answer interview questions. <laughs> You know, like when you're supposed to lie and be like, yeah. your greatest weakness is that you work too much. You're right. <laughs> so I hear you're really talented. Well, I'm not. I'm not really talented. Yeah, I got nothing in yeah. me. I mean, that's that's essentially what he's doing. He says it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so here you have Joseph who's saying, my God trumps the one that your nation views as a god. And in some sense, it, it would this would have been semi humiliating to Pharaoh. Like, you're a god, and you don't even know what your own dreams mean. Mm. I've got a god who can tell you what your dreams mean. <laughs> so, But think about what that does to the entire court of the pharaoh. Like, they're all hearing Joseph, who's coming before him. And what does this say about Joseph? It means when he makes these comments, because he could have come in and just taken the easy way and said, oh, yes, yes, my lord, Show, tell me your dream, and I'll, I'll interpret it. But he takes this moment to humble himself. You know, it, it reminds me of John the Baptist where he says, I must decrease and you know, so that Jesus can increase. That's what he's doing here. Like the, the power to interpret dreams is not in me. So I don't want you to think highly of me. It's my God who should get all the glory here because it's him doing it, right? And he's risking the fact that Pharaoh might very well be irritated with his tone and send him back to prison but Joseph would rather risk going back to prison than not taking this opportunity to talk about the ma- the majestic power of his God. Yeah, I think it's interesting now that we're talking about this. I never thought about it before. But we always leave the uh, the Pharaoh and God kind of battle to later in yeah. Exodus. But then we saw it with Abraham. Mm-hmm. Like we saw a Pharaoh moment there where it was blatantly evangelistic. Like plagues were thrown down like a supernatural thing had to happen to open up this pharaoh's eyes and now you have this moment that's evangelistic in a sense too like god my god's going to supernaturally do something to you Mm -hmm. so it's god's even favor before even moses gets there i'm like hey egyptians hey open your eyes a little bit like you should have heard about these stories yeah the interesting thing is the first two pharaohs so the pharaoh of abraham's day where he's plagued with you know he gets plagues and that but he's looking at abraham like why did you allow this to happen right he wasn't this hard-hearted, awful person. He's like, you know, take her, go. Here's here's a bunch of yeah, money and get wealth out and get out of here. And in this story, you don't get the sense that this Pharaoh is upset. You know, he's not hard-hearted. He's not mean. He's not vengeful. You don't get that impression. But in the days of Moses, gross, yeah. like really gross. In fact, I've heard some people comment that they believe that this Pharaoh of Joseph's era will be in heaven. Hmm. So debate that amongst yourselves, yeah, but let's look at it down. as we go. Because what what's the standard for salvation in the Old Testament? Faith. Faith. That's it. It's trusting in the promise of God to come and redeem his people, right? So, mm. so let's look at what this Pharaoh does. And so you can make, it's not up to us to judge human beings, but let's look and see if he shows any hallmarks of being a man who trusts in the Lord. So here we go. That's a hot take, though. We're just dropping. I love that. Why not? So verse 17, it says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. And by the way, he's not, he's not proud. He's not, he's not no. saying, oh, you're stupid God. Like, he's like, all right, well, you know, if your God can help me, here, here, here we go. Yeah, like you're, at every turn, you see him be like, okay, if this was the moment, like, hey, it's not me, it's my God. He could have stopped him there. Yeah. 
He could have just not even told him his dreams. And then even after the dreams, he's going to have the opportunity to say, I don't even like that answer, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. The intensity of his need. He is so in distress and turmoil about these dreams. The intensity of his need has softened him to be able to receive a word from Joseph about a God that perhaps he had never heard of before. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dreams I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the, the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they'd eaten them. So that's a new detail that he, that he shares on the retelling. So you have these skinny cows that eat these huge fat cows, which after you, you know, if you eat a massively fat cow, it's got to go somewhere, right? But the skinny cows still look starved and sickly. Like they just devoured them and nothing happened. So that's, that's key to the interpretation. For they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke and I, I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. And so then Joseph goes into the interpretation of the dreams. And by the way, remember Joseph had his own two dreams. And so now he's taking two dreams of Pharaoh. For some reason, they always come in pairs. He's going to get into that. Joseph says, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. So that's, that's the magic word in Egypt. <laughs> like he hears that, and it's like, oh, no. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. And I want to stop there for a moment because if you're Pharaoh and you're living in ancient Egypt, you have a God for everything, right? You have a God of the Nile that determines the floods. You have the gods of agriculture. You have the gods of of rain. You have the gods of the sun. All these gods that bring some variable that's absolutely necessary to the growing of crops. And I want you to listen to what Joseph just said. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. In other words, it's not your pantheon of gods that you know determines when years of abundance and years of famine come. My God, solo, alone, is the one who is going to accomplish this. He has shown you what he, singular, is going to do. You can take all of your other stupid gods and throw them in the dumpster because they're not the ones who play any role in this. It's, it's quite bold, isn't it? Like this, and again, Joseph has spent the last 13 years suffering, and he's mm. putting all of the chance of freedom, all of his chance at you know being liberated out of all these injustices. He's, it's like he's willing to risk himself for the sake of Pharaoh seeing how awesome his God is. Like, what does that, what does that tell you? 
Yeah, it's interesting that his primary purpose is that, and it's clear. Because mm-hmm. his primary purpose isn't even about interpreting the dreams even. His primary purpose is not about his future. His primary purpose is saying, okay, this is what God's going to do, and he's using these dreams to show you. Yeah. But one of the things that I love about this, because one of my greatest fears is that I would be sent to prison for the rest of my life. I've heard it's like a terror story for me. Like I just, I don't like to think about it. But then you look at Joseph in his slavery and in his imprisonment, he has learned that the Lord, because you, I mean, you got nothing else there, right? The Lord was so precious to him in that time that he knows even if he gets thrown back into prison, he goes back with the Lord and he's okay with it. Like he's, he's freed up from all the threats that Pharaoh could possibly throw at him because even if you throw me back in prison, I've got the Lord and he's my treasure. But he matters so much to me and he's been so good to me in my time of injustice that I could not stand before you today and not give him credit. Yeah, he's a testament to circumstances don't bring satisfaction. That actual satisfaction isn't based off your circumstances, but who God is and where you're at with him. You know, we, talk, we had this conversation among the, the pastors and staff uh, this morning about like when you come to a dry season and it seems like everything is going wrong, how in some crazy way that produces some of the most profound worship that you have. Mm-hmm. Because it's in the moments where God is providing all these things for you that your relationship with him gets clouded with the fact that he, you know, do I love him or do I love the fact that he gives me this? But when you're in a season of disappointment where, you know, the, the Pez dispenser of heaven is shuts down and you're not getting any of the things that you're asking for, good things that you're desperately crying for, can you still look at him even though he's not giving you all of your requests or maybe any of your requests and say, you're precious enough to worship just for the fact that you are who you are regardless of whether you serve my desires or serve my prayer requests or anything like that. And Joseph, what you see here is good grief. Like this guy has suffered a lot and he still looks at the Lord and says, he's worthy of everything I've got. I'll go back to prison before I I walk away from the chance to tell other people about how good he is. It's remarkable faith here. Yeah. He's beautiful in that. It's commendable, super commendable. Where, what verse are we at? All right, so in verse 28, like we just talked about, he looks at Pharaoh and he says, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. And then here comes the major interpretation. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, and now he's explaining, like, why did you have two dreams back to back? He says the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And so if you ever have a dream that stirs your spirit, and then you have another dream that's almost identical, what Joseph is telling you is that means that God is validating it. You think that still works for us these days? I would assume. Why not? I'm go, I'll go with it. I mean, we don't have those a lot here, but if you... you ever have, any, have you ever had weird dreams? I have weird dreams. None that I think are God weird. 
<laughs> so you don't think God's trying to show you something in your dreams? I don't think so. Yeah. But also do a narcolepsy. I have those weird dreams. I have those lucid dreams. I'm confused about which yeah. state I'm in. So I'm, I don't know if I'm a good testament. <laughs> you know, you might dreams. be dreaming right now. Yeah, I could be. <laughs> so, by the way, both Will and I have been diagnosed as narcoleptics. He's the only other narcoleptic I've met. And I'm not even sure that the doc was right about me. I think I may have been just really tired. During we present that different symptoms. Yeah, <laughs> Will was like, "Oh, you're getting this medicine. It's going to change your life." And I was like, "Nope, nope, not at all." Yeah, those uppers changed me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Like right away." I don't think I'm a narcoleptic. I think, I think he was trying to make money or something. Yeah, he's a fake. So you have this promise of a tremendous abundance followed by famine. And he says, the fact that you've had the repeat dreams, that means it's definitely coming. God has fixed this. Now that, And then he gives the solution. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Hmm. Who could it be? Real setup here. <laughs> and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land, so a 20% tax of everything that you harvest, all over Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. One of the things that's interesting, it's like archaeology goes through Egypt and as you're digging around, you can tell what dynasty you're in. You can tell, you know, depending on the strata of where you're digging, you know, what era of Egypt you're digging through. And they find silos through this particular period all over the place because there was a massive project underway to avoid this famine. And I think it's interesting how much trust Joseph has to give Pharaoh even control over who to pick. Because mm -hmm. obviously it seems like we know the story, so it seems like he's setting up for himself, but he could have easily just been like, yeah, I think God's saying that I should be over it. Yeah. Yeah. But he leaves it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have been like, oh, yeah, here's he's my brother-in-law. Yeah. He's got everybody though, <laughs> already under his control. So why not just pick one of them as opposed to this kid who he's never met? Yeah. So it is an interesting trust exercise too, being like, Hey, everything's in your hands, Pharaoh. Yeah. Joseph's still a young guy. He's 30 years old right here when this happens. It's a power play, but he's trusting the Lord to steer all this. Yeah. You know, God and all of his sovereignty, and by the way, we would think, like, I don't like the way God has been steering my story. If you're Joseph, it's like, man, every time I get somewhere and I feel like I'm about to, you know, be on the upswing, something happens that chops my legs out from underneath me, and I end up being betrayed, going into slavery, thrown into prison. And what he's doing is, you know what, you pick who you want. And he's putting it up out there to the sovereignty of God on who to pick. Like Joseph's faith is remarkable because I think like you're talking about each and every one of us would want to kind of manipulate the situation to steer our own story. Cause there'd still be a part of him that has to be like, man, I've seen God's faithfulness, but every time I give up some control, I seem to just get destroyed. Mm -hmm. Like there has to be a little bit of doubt, but yet he's just like, no, you know how they have like a whipped dog syndrome where like if, if enough bad things happen to you, every time you come you know, back to the hand that's supposed to be feeding you, but you you feel like life has beaten you down, you kind of start wincing. Yeah. If I'm Joseph, like, I'm just going to be honest. I, like, I, I would be like, please, God, please, not again, not again, not again. 
And he just seems so confident, you know, like, you know, he doesn't want to go back to prison. You know, he doesn't want to go back to the pit. And yet he's, he's throwing himself entirely on the mercy of Pharaoh while also knowing that Pharaoh's heart is squarely in the hand of God, a sovereign God. And that's, that's powerful. So it says this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants, which is, I want to stop there for a moment because that's no small statement. Guess who's among his servants? Potiphar. Yeah. Potiphar's captain of the guard. He would have been right up there among the officials. And so here you have Joseph who's giving this, you know, prediction, this prophecy. And when Pharaoh's like, I like it. Potiphar's right behind him going right on this. This guy should get the promotion. Yeah, and there's no discussion either. It's just like, we're going to accept this wholeheartedly. There's no haggling or dealing or, are you sure about this issue? Are you sure about that? Or just yeah. wholehearted favor from Pharaoh to Joseph. Yeah, and then what Pharaoh does is he looks at all, you got to imagine, if you're Joseph, this moment has to feel good. <laughs> Pharaoh said to all of his servants, so here's all of his officials, right? All the best, most qualified people in the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth at this time. And he says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? So that, I mean, that sounds like Pharaoh is going, I want to put the, our country, our kingdom in the hands of a man who holds the spirit of Yahweh, his God. So here you have Pharaoh who seems to be expressing faith in the God of Joseph to some degree. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Whoa. What's this make you think of? The original dreams? The original dreams. It's not just family. Now all of Egypt is bowing the knee before him. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah. See how that that name, Zaphonath-Paneah, it literally means God speaks and he lives. And so, like, you think about that, that's, you know, a little bit of a pattern of pointing you to Jesus, who is the word of God. And just like Joseph, who's raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, who all of Egypt sees as a God, Jesus, after he is murdered, he's going to be resurrected, raised to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And the key is, and he's a living God. Mm -hmm. So he speaks and he lives. And he gave him in marriage Isenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Potiphera has nothing to do with Potiphar. No. Okay. It's just the daughter of one of the Egyptian priests. So I'm going to take a pause here. And what I want to do is just kind of talk about some of the cool things that they have discovered in archaeology. 
So at the end of Genesis, we're told when Joseph goes into Egypt that he settles his family in the city of Ramses. And we know where that is. We absolutely know where Ramses is. But the problem is the city was named Ramses when you get, this is the, the 12th dynasty of Egypt. You're, you're rolling your eyes. No, I'm just getting my archaeology focus head on. Because <laughs> you got to switch gears if you're listening yep, to this. Switch gears, ready? So this city where Joseph takes his family is named Ramses, but the problem is, is Ramses doesn't even exist until you get to the 19th dynasty, and we're only in the 12th dynasty. So a lot of the skeptics went, eh, Ramses doesn't even exist until hundreds of years later when you get to the 19th dynasty. Well, when you go to Ramses and you start digging underneath Ramses, you come to this even more ancient city that's called Avaris, okay? You with me? You got your Avaris, ar- yeah. you got your archaeology. Avaris is under Ramses. Right. So it would be like if you were going back and you were you found a piece of literature that talked about, you know, somebody who went to New Amsterdam. Do you know have you ever been to New Amsterdam? No. Have you been to New York? Briefly. Okay, well, you've been to New Amsterdam. But oh, it's just what they used to call it, right? So same kind of deal. When they wrote the Old Testament, they, they named it Ramses as it was being translated in later generations, but the name of it and the era of Joseph was Avaris. Okay. The same place got called Ramses later on. So when you dig down in Avaris, really cool stuff. From the University of Vienna, one of the archaeologists is, is a guy named Manfred Bitak, and he starts digging around, and he's finding evidence of Joseph. He finds a palace that he says is absolutely not Egyptian. It is Syro-Palestine, the way that it's built, is very unique to that region where Joseph's family has come from. It has an obsession with the number 12, like there's 12 columns on the front, there's 12 windows. In the yard, there's a barrier, there's there's tombs, and there's 12 of them. And their they're burials, the mounds, look they're like little dome-looking things, but there's 11 of those, but there's one pyramid now, that's interesting because, okay, you have 12 burial plots that are on this property. One of them is given a pyramid. Why is that? Why would that be significant? Because there was one who was Egyptian. You have 12 brothers, right? 11 of them are given ordinary burials, but a pyramid, that you only get a pyramid if you're considered like royal authority. Hmm. And yet it's on a Syro-Palestine kind of architecture of this palace, and yet that guy's given... A pyramid. So they go into the ruins of this ancient pyramid, which is fairly small, large, but fairly small compared to like what we think of as a pyramid. And they find a guy who's got multicolored robe on. He has got yellow skin, which means he's not Egyptian. He's Semitic. He's got red hair. Can you think of any family that has a redhead in it? Oh, we know one. Yeah, Esau, right? So his uncle Esau has red hair. Maybe Joseph did as well. So this statue, and here's the crazy, like outside of where the burial is, they find a signet ring, just like Pharaoh said he gave to Joseph. And on the signet ring is the hieroglyph that says that he's the overseer of all foreign trade. Do you know what Joseph does? He's the overseer of all foreign trade. And so people started thinking, and it, it, it dates exactly to when we should find Joseph in the Bible, right in the middle of the 12th dynasty, around 870 B.C., during the reign of a pharaoh, are you glazing yet? No, no, no. During the pharaoh of a guy named Amenemhat III, which is just a fun name to say, Amenemhat III. So what's interesting about Amenemhat is we know that he suffered a, a pretty bad a, a famine during his reign. 
And one of the things that they did is somebody during his reign went and surveyed all the land of Egypt and they found this area that's called the Fayum. And so if you look at Egypt from like an aerialite, aerialite, a satellite aerial map, you'll see the Nile River running through the desert that then kind of goes to the, to the Nile Delta and it spawns out. But if you go down the Nile River from the Delta a while, there's something that goes to the west, and it looks like a spade almost. But there's this huge patch of land called the Fayum Oasis that just happens to the west. That wasn't always there, but during the reign of Amenemhat III, some guy figured out that that land was lower than all the other land of Egypt, and he thought, hey, I could dig a trench from the Nile westward to this lower depressed land flood the area, irrigate it, and I can get more farmland so that we can have bigger crops. And so as long as that's existed, it's called the Fayum Oasis. You can look at it, Google a map on it. But the canal that joins it, you know what it's called? An Egyptian. Joseph's. It's called the Bar Yusef, which means the canal of Joseph. So for as long as we've known this name of this thing that dates back to the third all the way back in the 12th dynasty, this trench that was dug is called the Canal of Joseph. And when that pharaoh chose to have his pyramid built, he had already started a pyramid called the Black Pyramid, but this canal changed his pharaoh legacy so much that he abandoned that pyramid and built a Hawara pyramid that's a hop, skip, and a jump away from the Canal of Joseph. In fact, I've been to the Canal of Joseph. I've walked into this flooded pyramid there, which was for Amenemhat III. So this pharaoh thought so much of whatever this guy did who dug the Canal of Joseph, whoever may have done that. Weird. Yeah, and that expanded the farmland of Egypt, and it saved his legacy that he chose to have his pyramid built there. Huh. And at Avaris, where Joseph just so happens to have lived, there's a place that's obsessed with the number 12. And inside this pyramid, there's a guy with yellow skin, meaning he's not Egyptian, multicolored coat, ring that says that he's overseeing all foreign trade. It's like, dude, this I think that's Joseph. It, it would be hard-pressed not to be. Uh, right? So very, very, very fascinating all right, one other thing from the historical archaeological record, and then then you can take your, <laughs> your archaeology. Back to normal hat. life. Back to normal life, yeah. At this particular time, we know that Egypt suffered a massive invasion almost of migrants coming from all over the place, right? So we're going to see... As this story goes, Joseph stores up all this grain and foreign people from every nation of the region come because there's such a severe famine. We know that there's a massive migration into Egypt of all the foreign nations at the time. Their sages are writing about how bad it is that they're getting so much migration. Nefirti, who's one of their sages, referred to how much he could not stand all the quote-unquote feeders that were coming into Egypt in search of grain. And so as we're discovering more and more in the historical record, guess what? The story of Joseph that is, you know, 3,800 plus years ago is being validated with archaeology. And all of the details of the story begin to emerge consistent with what they're finding. 
All right, so ver- jumping back into the text, verse 46, it says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. What's he doing? Well, he's making plans. He's telling cities what they're to be doing. He's surveying the land. He's trying to find every nook and cranny in all of Egypt where he can pull more farmland and more production in anticipation of this famine. And so he digs the Bar Yusef, the Canal of Joseph. Verse 47, during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food into the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until it's, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not even be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons of Joseph were born. At this moment, you're wondering, okay, Joseph is now entrenched in Egyptian culture, right? He's got an Egyptian wife who's the daughter of an Egyptian priest. And so you're wondering, what's his faith doing through all this? And his children give some kind of an answer to this, right? It says, verse four, verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And so here he is in the service of Pharaoh and God, he's like, thank God, like all of that is behind me. I'm not carrying those wounds anymore. God has made me forget all my hardship. And so even in the name of his son, he is praising God for his goodness. In the name of his second son, he called Ephraim. Again, this is a, a, a name that should evoke praise. And he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What a incredible perspective this guy has. Yeah, that's really what it is. You know, For all of us, it is a perspective issue more so than a circumstantial issue. But that's, that's just his nature. Like when he is enslaved, he is fruitful in the affliction. When he's imprisoned, he's fruitful in the affliction. When he's raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, he is fruitful, even though this land is not his homeland. Like everywhere that God allows him to go, whether it's just or unjust, Joseph refuses to do anything but be fruitful, no matter what the affliction might be. So the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph has said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. It all went according to plan. Right? So we've talked about this in the previous episodes, how all of this is pointing us toward Jesus, right? How, you know, here you have the father's beloved son who's a shepherd who's, you know, set against the 12 and one of the 12 whose name is Judah, the Hebrew form of Judas, sells him for silver. And he's taken down by people who are in the industry of death and embalming. 
down to the land of death where he is going to be falsely accused and imprisoned between two guys, one of whom is going to be condemned and the other restored. And so at this particular perspective, we find out that all of this suffering that he does is for what? So that he can provide life-giving bread to a world that was perishing. Does that sound familiar? It does. But that's it, man. You know, Jesus comes and he walks through all these injustices. And yeah, there's something about us when we see this happening to like one of us. It's like we, we say, yeah, of course Jesus suffered. But with Joseph, it's like we feel it a little bit more acutely maybe. Like, you know, yeah, Jesus was God, so that's different. But Jesus walks through all these painful painful injustices. And I'm going to suggest to you that it would have been harder for Jesus than it was for Joseph because Joseph had a fallen mind. Joseph Joseph doesn't know what true righteousness is, but Jesus is suffering all of these afflictions with the perfections of righteousness. He doesn't have a soiled conscience. He's not selfish. He knows what beauty should look like, and yet he still walks the road of affliction. Why? so that he can be the bread of life that is given freely to his people. And what is that bread of life? He says it at the Last Supper. This is my body, broken and given for you. And that's it. And so Joseph in his sufferings lays up a life that saves the world. And he is pointing us to one who's going to be far, far greater than Joseph, a far, far greater provider who has come to save the world. Amazing. I mean, this is the clearest story other than Jesus about how suffering leads to glory because you see actual physical, earthly glory even come to Joseph because of this. When we see the ascension of Joseph to reign over the affairs of Egypt, it helps us to see just how sovereign God is and his strategy to all this. Because, like, go back to the beginning. If his brothers had not hated him, he would never have been sold into slavery, right? And if he never became a slave, he wouldn't have been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And if he'd never been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he never would have been in a prison. If he was never in a prison, he never meets the cupbearer. If he never meets the cupbearer, he never meets Pharaoh. If he never meets Pharaoh, he's never exalted over all of Egypt. And if he's never exalted over all of Egypt, guess what? The entire world suffers suffers, and dies of starvation. And so what we want to do naturally throughout all the story of Joseph is to say, why would he allow this? Why would he allow this? Why would he allow this? And yet you look back in the sovereignty of God and you see that if any of the chinks of this chain had been broken, the world dies. And so sometimes when we're in the middle of our suffering, you can't just look at an event and go, why would you do this, God? It's unjust. It may very well be unjust, but you have to imagine that God is creating a chain through his sovereignty that's ultimately leading to something that may very well save the world or save your family or save you. All right, so we're going to leave it there. We thank you for joining us uh, today. We hope that you join us for our next episode as we continue this march through the life of Joseph and the other sons of Jacob as we get to see just how amazingly awesome and sovereign and good our God is. God bless. 
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.